millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello once again and welcome back to Signals to Danger. This is a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. Sometimes the content we discuss is distressing, and the subject we cover means that loss of life and injury are a feature of most episodes. So I've never really done trigger warnings before, but I've heard that's something you're supposed to do, so have a trigger warning. My name's Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'm going to be the one taking you through this podcast. Since the last time we spoke, I'd love to take the opportunity to thank Roy and Jason for signing up to the Patreon and supporting the podcast. If you would like to find out how to do this, head over to signalstodanger.com and click on support. As I said last time, all patrons are going to be able to go over to our Patreon page now and watch the recording session of this episode. Little wave to all of you, and of course, to those of you who have subscribed to the live stream tier, you're here watching right now, so hello to you as well. Today's episode is from a little bit further back in time than I'm used to doing, so I'm having to write from a slightly less detailed what we call accident returns, um, not a full report, uh, a document that had the details of several accidents in it. Only a few pages compared to the 30 or 40 I'm used to in a lot of the big reports. This means that the flow of today's episode might be a little bit different, but I want to be able to tell this story. I think it's an important one, so I want you to try and do it, and I hope you enjoy it. And if it's a miss and not a, a hit, then everyone needs some, eh? Anyway, it's... Uh, it also takes place in 1861, so just beware in advance of me accidentally saying 1961. With all of that ramble out of the way, I think it's now time for us to get into episode 3. Here and there the darkness was penetrated by the lanterns of those who clambered over the wreckage. One carriage lay crushed beneath the mass of a ruined steam engine, wedged between it and the roof. A truly horrific sight. The year is 1861 and the place is Clayton Tunnel Carriages are crushed one on top of another Investigators at the scene search through the wreckage for the A point's failure 
In the introduction to the last episode, we spent some time talking about structures, well, earthworks and structures. I managed to burn through about five minutes of my usual tangential nature, and I could probably use most of the same paragraphs this time round to lead me into the subject of today's episode and structures once again. But I don't think you'd want to listen to the exact same spiel twice, and you might be forgiven for thinking you downloaded the wrong episode if I did that. Suffice to say, I will forgo repetitiveness, and I'm going to head straight into talking about one specific type of structure, the tunnel. When there's a hill in your way and going around it isn't really an option, tunnels are the solution. Sometimes we see them being only a dozen yards long, and other times miles on miles, but enough about tunnels in general... Today we want to talk about one example in particular, Clayton Tunnel. Clayton Tunnel lies between Hassocks and Preston Park stations on the Brighton Main Line. This line connects the capital with, unsurprisingly, Brighton on the south coast. Nowadays the line is electrified for its entire length, third rails carrying powers to the trains. But I think it's clear to tell that this wasn't the case back in 1861. The line was built starting in 1837 after an Act of Parliament was finally obtained by the London and Brighton Railway. Now, the nature of the land between the capital and the coast was predominantly rural. There's not many large settlements or built-up areas, and that meant the route didn't necessarily need to bob and weave around to pick up passengers from numerous stations along the route. But what it didn't mean, however, is that the going was going to be easy. In the way of the lines were the North Downs, the Whedon Ridge and the South Downs, all of which brought their own engineering challenges. Now, the line features what is regularly referred to as the biggest cutting on the network, a number of embankments, the 450-metre-long Owls Valley Viaduct, and no less than seven tunnels. All of this engineering was impressive, and it is impressive now, and actually, when you consider that it was constructed in the early half of the 1800s, it's ridiculously impressive. The fact that it still faithfully helps trains traverse this part of the network reliably. One particular piece of that raft of accomplishments, though, is of interest to us particularly. Clayton Tunnel. Clayton is the longest tunnel on the route, at 2,066 metres, loosely around about a mile and a half. The tunnel's design was to avoid the South Downs, which is a range of hills which, let's be fair, didn't particularly lend themselves to a nice flat railway, where we could travel at nice, well, I say high speeds, it was 1861, Nice, reasonable speeds and without having to strap three or four trains onto the front of a a, a service. The idea of a tunnel in this location, though, was not without its doubters. The Brighton Guardian, a local newspaper, was commonly sceptical and in a very public way questioned whether it was even possible to construct such a tunnel and shouted that the line would need to be diverted to avoid the South Downs entirely. While avoiding the Downs would have made the engineering easier, it would have added many miles onto journeys in both directions, which would have negated some of the benefits of the railway. So in 1839, a contract to build the tunnel was awarded to the esteemed canal builder William Hoof, a man respected for his ability to tunnel the waterways through tough terrain. The construction went well, and after three years the tunnel opened to traffic. There were two unusual features of the tunnel at Clayton, the first of which was the result of heavy increases in passenger travel by rail. Gas lighting. In what seems to be something completely out of the norm even today, the whole tunnel was to be lit. They were going to use gas um, because that was the lighting at the time. But the idea was that it would increase the tunnel's 
hospitable hospitability that is a word that i have struggled ridiculously with and i'm going to leave that in just so you can enjoy that moment for train born passengers but in real life the passage of trains snuffed out the lights which required them to be constantly relit by the tunnel keeper and so in the interest of avoiding frustration i guess and constantly paying somebody to go and turn the lights on again their use was soon discount discontinued the second unusual feature related to the tunnel portals. The north one, towards London, well, that was pretty standard and unimpressive, but the south, well, that was architecturally quite significant. There is an intricate brick portal, which is bracketed by two octagonal turrets. Atop the turrets, you'll find battlements. The portal then extends out to either side of the cutting, filling in the space in quite an imposing manner. Um, in between the turrets on the top of the tunnel mouth, a single-storey cottage sits, which is perched above the line. Now, this is one of those moments where podcast as an audio medium doesn't really work because I can't quite do it justice in words. So my recommendation is to go and have a Google. Um, other search engines are available. There is a bit of ambiguity as to which architect was actually responsible for the stunning design. It was suggested that the North Portal was only designed at the point where the tunnel was nearly completed. Plans were submitted by the chief engineer, John Rastrick, um, and it had been speculated that he designed it or that he'd done it jointly with William Hoof. Realistically, nobody knows, so we couldn't credit the success to any one person. But in 1849, the two towers were converted for use by Signalman, and that neatly brings us back on track for the day's story, because on Sunday the 25th of August 1861, signalling played a very significant role in the events that would take place. So let's briefly talk about signalling and how it's progressed throughout the life of the railway. Yes, a lot of other episodes have talked about colour light signalling, track circuits, TPWS, AWS and a few other safety features. But I think it's safe to say that 1861 is a little bit before most of those developments came into place. So it's probably time for a quick, not at all comprehensive, he said as a disclaimer, potted history of railway signalling in the UK. In the infancy of the early 1800s, there were no signalmen, or women for that matter. There were, however, railway policemen. While their responsibilities were quite varied, one key part of the role was the provision of signals with flags or hands to the drivers of trains. They would allow a train to pass, and then if another train turned up inside of a set time interval, say five minutes, he would signal for that train to stop. And after the correct safe, in inverted commas, interval had passed, he would let the train progress along the line. Technology developed a little better, steam engines more efficient and in turn speeds rose, so those hand signals were not as easy to see at higher speeds. Next step, the railway started to introduce mechanical solutions, bigger fixed signals which the policemen would operate. In turn, policemen became signalmen. Coincidentally, signals on the railway are still very often referred to by the name bobbies, as a result of being policemen at this stage in development, and that is a nickname that has stood the test of an awfully long time. You've probably even heard me refer to them as bobbies in this podcast before. On the job, I've always referred to them as bobbies. I haven't been in the railway a ridiculously long time, but it only took a few months for me to start calling the bobby the bobby. 
Now, these fixed signals and signalers worked to a degree again, but advances in speed meant that trains once again travelled quicker and quicker and heavier loads were harder to stop, so more was needed to advance the system so it was safe. Over time, the tracks were divided into blocks and absolute block signalling, which I have done to death in previous episodes, was introduced, which allowed larger and larger signal boxes to pass trains between each other. Signals and points were adjusted with big, heavy levers in the boxes, requiring a strong arm to pull them. Physically pulling the lever pulled a cable, which led to a signal arm, which could then be some many hundred metres away, a fairly manual task, even with counterweights involved. These signal boxes were linked to each other by wires and would communicate via telegraph that the tracks were clear before movements. Mechanical interlocking was introduced, physical slides and rods which only interacted with each other when the settings were in a safe setup. This stopped conflicting movements being signalled or points being set against each other. Fantastic advances, but not without incident, as we've discovered in many times out of the past 32 episodes. As technology developed further, the signaler's communication was enhanced by the introduction of track circuiting, a system which could automatically detect the presence of a train and signal its location on a diagram in the signal box, as well as automatically interlocking points or signals against dangerous settings. Over time, the mechanical signals and interlocking gave way to electronic bulbs and electronic relays, which worked in a similar way to the mechanical interlocking and the absolute block signalling. Well, that started to make way for four-aspect colour signalling or three-aspect colour signalling. Boxes in many areas were slowly phased into powered signal boxes which covered a greater area. Automatic signals linked to the track circuits were introduced on many areas of general track and large control panels replaced a wall of windows for many of the bobbies, or signalers. Big, heavy levers and half-mile cables turned into easy-to-press buttons, lights and bulbs, all connected by miles of electrical cable. The next giant leap in our very, very limited potted history brings us into a much more modern era, and we know I love an acronym, so let's talk about IECCs. In the 80s, 1980s now, not 1880s, the idea of bringing larger areas of signalling together developed into integrated electronic signalling centres. Control centres, because it's two Cs. Integrated electronic control centres. Large panels became computer screens and workstations, and relay interlocking transitioned into solid-state interlocking, a software version of the exact same rules that did the same job, all on a microchip. Banks of workstations, all located in a single building, each replacing previous signal boxes that had stood out on the side of the track. The final iteration would probably be what we have now, a development of the IESCC idea, with control of the entire network being folded into just 12 rail operating centres, or rocks. Those super signal boxes will eventually be responsible for pretty much all signalling, up and down the network, with a few small exceptions, I'm sure. They are fantastic and fascinating buildings. I've had the luxury to... Um, spend a little bit of time in Manchester Rock myself. And, well, the spaces are shared with train operating companies as well, which means everyone's control functions are in the same space and there's just a much more joined up method of work. Theoretically, I'm sure it doesn't always work. And, and sometimes it's probably just as difficult to do as ever, but the future. So that is a a really, really quick rundown of signalling in the UK. Um, for now, there's definitely some stuff to come. There's in-cab signaling um, and European traffic management software, etc. But let's not get into that because let's be fair, I've probably rambled on far too much now considering the timing of today's episode is 1861. 
The Clayton Tunnel disaster did not take place in the time of track circuits and fancy ele- integrated electronic who what's its No, in eighteen sixty one the arrangement was much, much simpler. So let's get back off my tangent, because that's twice now, and look at the arrangements on the Brighton main line in those early days. Clayton Tunnel was about five miles north of Brighton, and traffic through the tunnel was regulated by or controlled by signals to ensure safe transit. This was slightly less advanced than setups we're used to now, but probably about right and standard for the time. The signaler was located outside the tunnel at each end, sighted in what the report delightfully, delightfully refers to as a hut. The two huts were connected by a telegraph, allowing them to communicate with each other in the course of their duty. At the north end, controlling trains from London towards the coast, the signaler controlled a semaphore signal at his actual hut and also a distant signal a little further down the line. The South Portal only had a distant about 300 yards away. Now it's important to control access to the tunnel. Trains sometimes lost power in them for various reasons and visibility obviously is an issue. Not to mention the idea of a crash in a tunnel is terrifying. Wooden coaches, gas lighting, the chance of a fire in enclosed space, the the pitch black, the difficulty rescuing people. How do you work in that space? It's one to just try and avoid altogether if you can. The signals outside the tunnel were known as Whitworth signals, and we were called automatic signals, but they're not really automatic, not in the way that we have automatic signals now. Modern signals, which are classed as automatic, will either clear or set themselves to danger based on trade movements in the area. They go through the whole raft of aspects that they're supposed to display to a driver on their own based on the inputs. Whitworth signals were a little less advanced than that. They were capable of showing two settings based on their position, danger, or all right, crack on. When the last train to pass through the tunnel had come out the other side, the opposite signaller would send a signal back to tell the bobby. Once this was received, the signaller would turn a wheel in his hut, physically winds a cable which set the signal to clear, proceed. Very manual and very basic. That's not automatic. The automatic part came slightly later. So the signal is now set to proceed, and when the wheels of a train passing that clear signal passed over the the track, they operated the treadle, which was a lever located in the track. The lever was pressed by the flange of the wheel that passed it. This lifted a vertical arm in a box next to the track, which in turn released a slide bar, which then allowed the counterparts on the cable, counterweights on the cable, to set the signal back to danger. It all seems a little bit mouse track. Mousetrap the game, so this does that and then pulls that. But that's how a lot of this stuff was set up at the time. The idea was that it was a semi-automatic mechanism which allowed the signals to automatically protect the line beyond when a train passed. And this was the method of operation in place on the 25th of August 1951, a day which turned very bad indeed. Sunday the 25th, things were as busy as ever on the platforms at Brighton. 
This was a core route into capital, and many people were travelling through the station to start their journeys. And many journeys there were as well. A little after 8am, there were three trains waiting to head north on the Brighton Main Line. The first was an excursion train, a kind of charter train that was added into the timetable to meet a specific need. And this was a semi-regular, planned in once every two weeks. The train started at Portsmouth a few hours later, a few hours earlier, sorry, at 6am, and the 16 carriages were coupled to a tender engine. On the way between Portsmouth and Brighton, the service had called 16 stations. Quite a hefty stopping pattern, which did mean that they'd lost a little bit of time on the journey, and were actually around about 23 minutes late by this point. The 0803 departure was now looking like it was going to be a lot more like half past. The second was another excursion train, but this one was a weekly one, direct from Brighton to the capital. This one, however, slightly beat out the first in length, with 17 carriages, and they too had a a planned departure that was looking like it was going to be difficult. 8.15, but the earlier train was already delayed, pushing it further and further back. Between the two trains, there was a lot of carriages, and a lot of people waiting to head north. But this week's episode, unfortunately, is a tale of three trains, and so we must see what else was waiting in the platforms at Brighton that morning. The third service was not an excursion train. It was a regular, timetabled passenger train, destined to run up the main line towards the capital, 12 more carriages, and another tender engine heading in the same direction. Finally, eventually, the first excursion train was ready to depart. From the 8.03 booked time, which was by now a fanciful dream, the whistles were blown, hand signals were given, and finally... At 08.28, steam surged into the cylinders, the wheels slowly began to turn, couplings took up the slack as the train edged out of the station and built up speed. But it wasn't the only train that needed to get going, and once the first one was on its way, the process was repeated again at 8.31 to start the second excursion on its journey. Two locomotives and 33 carriages were now on their way to London, all a bit late. And at 8.35, more whistles more signals, more steam signified the departure of the final train. Finally, late, everybody was on their way north. The first express proceeded up the five miles of track towards Clayton Tunnel. Then the approach to the South Portal, he passed the signal 300 yards before. For a thousand yards, he'd been able to see it, clearly displaying the proceed aspect. With no reason to show any concern, the train travelled on through the tunnel at the lofty speed of 25 to 30 miles an hour. And in a podcast about train crashes, I'm sure you'll be happy to hear that this train continued on to London without incident, not even stopping until it reached Norwood Junction, eight miles south of its destination. What happened behind it, however, is not quite as positive. The signaller at duty at Clayton Tunnel South Portal that morning was a man by the name of Killock. As the first excursion train passed him, he heard an alarm bell. This was designed to warn him that the signal had not worked as designed. He looked back to the signal to ensure that it had set itself back to danger. It had not. He later told investigators that he had attempted to use the wheel in the hut to set it back to danger manually, but was unsuccessful. Killick knew the danger here. He needed to ensure that the train was stopped. As the second excursion train approached, mere minutes later, he swiftly exited his hut and waved a red flag at the train to signify that it should stop. But the train didn't. It continued into the tunnel, and Killick believed that it had not seen his signal. 
As it passed, though, the signal did set itself back to danger, protecting the line in the way that it should have done the first time round. Killick returned back into the cabin and sent a telegraph signal to the North Hut to his colleague Brown. To his relief, he received a message that the tunnel was clear. He was relieved. He set about his day. He then looked back up the line to see that the last of the three trains had pulled up to his danger signal 300 yards back. Safe in the knowledge that the tunnel was clear, Killick understood what he assumed to be an unimportant and completely normal part of his role. He displayed a white flag to the driver there, cleared the signal and signalled him that it was safe to continue on his journey. With no cause for concern, no reason for caution, the driver opened the throttle and rolled past the point Killick stood. He entered the mouth of the tunnel at around 25 miles an hour. No risk perceived, no danger seen. All of this would have happened very differently if those on board, on the footprint of the locomotive, or Killick, had known what had taken place in the tunnel just minutes earlier. As the second of the trains had rounded the corner at Clayton Tunnel, he had seen the signal, a thousand yards ahead, calling him forwards, telling him the way was clear. With no reason otherwise, he approached the tunnel with his steam on, pushing forwards. As the train approached the portal itself, the crew suddenly became aware of the signalman waving a red flag to them. The train entered the tunnel, but the driver shut off steam, applied the brakes and brought his train to a gradual halt. Some distance into the tunnel, the train came to a stand in the darkness. Passengers no doubt confused and concerned as they sat there in the gloom. Unsure as to the danger, the driver took the decision, however unorthodox it was, to slowly reverse his train out of the tunnel, presumably to speak to the signaller and find out what was the problem, what was the danger, what was the flag for. While the second train was still moving backwards, the third entered the tunnel. Seconds later, the driver of that train saw the red lights at the rear of the second. He shut off steam, reversed the engine, well, nothing more at that point. There was nothing more he could do. He'd run out of the very limited time he had, and the two trains collided. The locomotive of the third rode up, over the frame of the rearmost carriage of the, ve- of the second train, a brake van. The body of that van was separated from the frame and pushed off to the right. The loco then continued across it, riding into and mounting the second to last vehicle one of the passenger coaches. The whole second train was pushed forwards at this point for about 50 yards. The funnel of the third locomotive scraped the roof of the tunnel itself, and as the loco stood perched atop the second coach, or rather, what was left of it. At this point, everything came to a stand, and everyone began to take stock of what had happened, figure out what had gone on. Understood that they had been involved in a sudden and violent collision within a tunnel, shattering the peaceful Sunday morning. Mercifully, there was no fire, though this was not a scene without its grisly bits. The two trains had played horse between them to 589 passengers, and 176 of them suffered injuries as a result of the accident. Some of them were minor injuries, but for many the damage done was more severe. 
The guard of the second train who had been travelling in the last vehicle had seen the collision coming and thrown himself clear of the train before it stuck. Despite this action, which surely saved his life, he was nearly killed, and even at the time the report was written, he was still recovering hospital. Though for 23 others, the results were worse still. They lost their lives in the black tunnel at Clayton, and the lion's share of this death toll came from the second last coach of the second train. That lay in the darkness, with a locomotive sat atop it, crushing the body almost completely. Twenty-one bodies were extricated from underneath the loco, and only three people had been successfully removed from the wreckage of that coach alive. The Monday morning following the accident, the newspapers had a headline, and the history books of the railway had received yet another dark chapter. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Understanding what went wrong at Clayton is to some extent an exercise in understanding what was absent from the safety systems of the time. To some extent, while this wasn't a railway in its infancy, it's probably equivalent to maybe an early teenager. All the basics are there and there's some finesse, but there's still a lot of education to go through. There were clearly some efforts being made here to separate the trains out, but they failed. So we should probably start by looking at the system in place to understand where it went wrong, and specifically what Killick at Clayton Tunnel South did on that day. The Whitworth signals at Clayton Tunnel should have been sufficient to stop the trains until an instruction to proceed was given, but with one failing, the system broke down. The automatic return to danger was supposed to be an efficiency and a safety feature. An automatic return to danger mitigated against the risk of a signaller forgetting to set the signal to danger after a train had passed. As an added bonus, it meant that the signaller would have around half as many reasons to turn the lever and manipulate the 300-yard cable and signal arm. There's nothing like reducing manual labour. It's, it's always a positive, but not if the system breaks. So a well-regulated and sensible signalman would check after each train passes that the signal returned to danger. If not, then he could use the wheel to manually set it that way. But what if there was a circumstance where the signal was unable to check or was indisposed at the exact wrong time or distracted? 
Well, there was a safety feature built in to account for this, and I mentioned it earlier, an alarm bell. This alarm would sound when the treadle was crossed and the train had passed, but the signal had not reverted to danger. So by one means or another, Killick had had his attention drawn to the fact that the signal hadn't reverted. He knew that there were other trains on the way that they were delayed, but he was aware of the timetable. And he knew his responsibility was to make sure that they didn't enter the tunnel. So he went to his wheel, started to try and turn it, and set the signal to danger. For one reason or another, it didn't work. Killick told investigators that he was unable to do so. This claim was investigated by inspectors when they attended the scene, and they couldn't find any reason why it wouldn't have worked, which is unusual, but there's no way to verify the exact reason at the time. It's possible something may have jammed in the mechanism, but was unjammed as the third train passed over, or the second, in fact. After all, the traffic signal did return to danger after the second train passed through. Regardless of the ability to return the signal to danger using the wheel, there was another train coming. Killick knew that, and he knew it probably wouldn't be that far behind. And before long at all, in fact only a few minutes, the second excursion train came into view. At this point, Killick had not received a bell signal from his colleague at the North Portal to tell him that the first train had exited, so he could not permit it to enter the tunnel. It was potentially very dangerous. So Killick grabbed his flag, ran out to the trackside to take plan B, a red flag waved to the driver. There is some ambiguity at this point, though. Killock told the investigators he was at the trackside while the train was only 150 yards away. Now, that train should probably be invisible for close to 1,300 yards, and if he'd already been trying to set the signal to danger, he should have been watching in that direction and maybe should have gotten out to the trackside sooner. There is a possibility that Killock only realised his signal was set at danger when he noticed the second train passing. This might explain his late exit from the cabin, and it might explain the fact that he said the wheel didn't work when there was nothing wrong with it. If he'd only realised just before the, just as the train was passing or coming up to his box, then he wouldn't have had a chance to actually trial it. He would have probably gone straight for the flag if it had passed the signal. Um, and if you add into this that the guard at the rear of the second train saw the signal set back to danger, that could have potentially been from the mechanism working properly at that time or from the attempts of Killick to do it. But we can't really, this is the important thing, we can't really confirm or refute Killick's account. But what is certain was that at the time he left his hut, he did not know whether the first train had made its way out safely. So he did the right thing by trying to stop the second train. And in fact, he succeeded in doing it. He just didn't know. I realise that going through all this, it could be easy to look at the uh, the evidence so far and blame Killick. I get that. <laughs> I first read through, I thought, this definitely feels like there's some blame here. But there is another key point that we need to consider when we, we think about laying the blame there. Timing. There were literally two to three minutes between the trains. Now... If you've ever tried to do anything quickly, or just generally, you know that that is no time at all. And it can seem like a long... If I just told you now, just stop and look at the clock and wait for three minutes, that will feel like a really long time. But if I tell you that your train is on a platform at the opposite side of the station and you only have three minutes to get there, you'll run. Because it really isn't a vast amount of time. It's 
the time just vanishes. And especially if you are trying to get something to work that you know needs to work and you're concerned about safety, that, that time will vanish. It's not a vast sum. So in fact, the investigators actually found no reason to say that Killock had done anything wrong in that respect. The way he worked was, was, was not, not at fault. So the investigation then moved on to look at something else, uh, another factor, the communication between the two signal boxes. Communication between the boxes either end of Clayton Tunnel was crucial to its safe operation. As each box sent a train in, that signaller would send a code to the other, other side, train in. And when that train exited, they would receive train out from the other end. This signal of train out, that was the cue for them to clear their distant signals to allow the next train to enter. That was the way that they knew their train had got in, got out the other side, and the tunnel was now clear for another train. On the day in question, the passage of the first train started absolutely as expected. Killick signalled train into Brown as the first train entered the tunnel. Brown acknowledged. Jobs are good and all that. System then started to fall down quite spectacularly. Killick became aware of the second train, but he had not heard the signal back from Brown, and we all know what happened next. With regards to the telegraph signals, however, there is a little bit of a difference. Brown sent train out to the south portal. That's not disagreed, but Killick states that he received it after he had run back to the hut, showing his red flag, and then he also sent a train in back to Brown for the second train. He said he did that immediately after receiving train out. Brown, however, states that he received it around about a minute later and then acknowledged it. Though at this point, there was an uncomfortable situation, one that shouldn't have existed, but a retrievable one. The distance at the South Portal was set at danger. The first train had left and was on its way to London and there was a train stopped in the tunnel and the signals didn't know it, but they were setting back in an overly cautious way, reversing up to the signal box to discover what the danger was. At this point, there was no reason for there to be a train crash. There was no reason for a collision to take place. The third train had arrived, but it pulled up to the danger signal and stopped. No risk, just a recipe for confusion and delay, something that's very at home on the railway. If Killick had waited till the second excursion train ran back out to him, all would have been avoided. But that's not what happened, and all because of a misunderstanding, a dreadful, very poorly timed misunderstanding. The time between all of these communications was very, very narrow. The tunnel was quite long, but the trains weren't fast. There was a lot of telegraphs going back and forth um, and a lot of trains traveling through in a very short time period. Brown was then asked over the telegraph a very important question by Killock. With this situation where there's another train waiting to enter, there's one train reversing out, Killock signaled Brown and asked, is the train out? Now, because of the speed and timings of these various trains and the, the, the telegraphs that are going back and forth, Brown made a mistake 
And it was an easy enough mistake to make within the circumstances, but it was a fatal mistake to make for all the people who were involved. He took that query to relate to the first train, the one that had literally just left the tunnel seconds, minute before he received the communication, but not the second. It must be understood, like I said, all these signals were happening in a very, very short period of time. And by the time the question was asked of him, that first train had just left. So the confusion meant that he misinterpreted it. And the fatal response, well, tunnel is clear. The train is gone. Full of reassurance at this point, and no doubt relief that the second train passed through safely, Killick cleared the signal and called on the train with a white white flag. It proceeded up to him and into the tunnel mouth, and the rest is dreadful history. The investigators chose, though, not to level the blame at these two men, citing the confusion and particularly the fact that it had predominantly been caused by a need to work too quickly to be safe. Three minutes was not really an adequate length of time to safely assess the situation, especially when the water had become muddied. In fact, this realisation actually provided a cause for the accident and laid the blame firmly at the feet of another. This section of my script I have entitled A Matter of Timing. Now, I do this every episode. I, I write my sections out. I, I pause the podcast. That's where I put my uh, my music in. I stretch it out, make sure it times well. But each section has a title. Some of them are entertaining. Some of them are really bad puns. It's just no one sees them. It's just for me. Um but this one I've entitled A Matter of Timing because timing was the key to this accident. As I said, three minutes was too short a time to allow for much thought or processing. And it also didn't provide much of a buffer to prevent slightly faster trains catching up with slower ones. And steam trains, they were really quite problematic for this. You had to have a good fire. It's not like a diesel engine or an electric engine when the motor produces this much power and generally they'll stay within that. If you have a bad fire in a steam engine, it just doesn't work as reliably. It can happen. So three minutes, not really enough time to allow for that. You could end up with bunching up trains. And it's still important nowadays, um, minus the issue about steam power. The timetable nowadays is carefully put together, anticipating different speeds of trains. It's planned out in a way that generally means everyone should get a pretty smooth run. You shouldn't really be spending a lot of time waiting at signals. Nowadays, that's the most, I suppose, the most dangerous effect you might see as a result of that now of catching up with the train in front is a double yellow signal, a single yellow, and then a red. It slows you down. It keeps you waiting. The difference between then and now is that signal system. That's what makes it safe, the reliable signaling system, something that just back in the 1800s wasn't as comprehensive a system as it is now. 
we've seen how ineffectual it can be at times. The problem is, with a system in its infancy, they relied on another system that could help keep the trains apart, safely, with inverted commas. This other system was the time interval system. Now, under the time interval system, you space out your trains by what you deem to be a safe interval. That allows for trains to pass comfortably along the line safely, and the predetermined interval was set in motion at the point where each train set out on the line. Along the way, you have features such as the tunnel, where you'll have a signalman, and they will try and keep the regulation more or less the same. But the interval started at the point of departure. And this was a process that was used on the Brighton main line, in addition to the signal boxes that were located there. And it should have played one of the major components in a system which safely kept trains spread out and allowed for signalmen as they were to have time to go about the duties properly and with the right amount of concentration. The time interval that was set on this route was five minutes, which makes sense. And it's not a massive difference to three minutes, but it does give a few more minutes thinking time. It's still allowed for a regular number of trains to use a line. And actually... Five minutes and three minutes, that's quite a big difference when you've got duties to carry out. Knowing that, it does bring another question in, and I'm not sure you'll remember back from that far in the podcast, but the departure times of these trains from Brighton does not tally up with that. The first at 8.28, the second at 8.31, and the third at 8.35. Three trains dispatched in a seven-minute time period not the 15 it should have taken to do it safely. It's clearly not in keeping with the expectation and indeed the rules that should have been followed. We've talked before about rules being bent and broken and this is a rule that was set out. The five minute time interval, it's there for a reason. It keeps your trains safely spaced out. It wasn't followed on this morning and the investigation found out it wasn't followed fairly routinely. The man responsible for this decision on this date, the assistant station master at Brighton, Charles Legg. Legg, well, he was surely under pressure to minimise delays. The whole industry is and always has been for as long as it exists. It's what we do. You put a time on a timetable, you've kind of got to try and get there at that time. But it should never be at the expense of safety, nor should it be achieved through contraventions of rules. Legg did both. He released trains in far shorter intervals than the rules mandated, either two or three minutes when it should have been five. Through this breach of processes, he engineered a situation which put undue pressure on signalers and grouped up those three fateful trains five miles to the north. As well as the investigation into the accident, there was also a coroner's inquest into the disaster. This nine-day inquest concluded with the jury finding that Charles Legg was guilty of manslaughter, because of his negligence of starting three trains so close together, specifically because it was against the rules of the company, and he knew why it was against the rules of the company. Luckily for the signalman Killican Brown, the jury did not find any negligence, but the verdict did mean that Leg would go on to be committed to trial for manslaughter. Although, as these things often go, he was eventually acquitted. So we have a cause and a bad guy, and the story is more or less finished, though there were a few final points to note. 
This accident could probably have been avoided altogether if one simple change had been made to the signalling setup at Clayton Tunnel. The North Portal had something that the South was missing. A second signal, right there at the hut. If that setup had been duplicated at the South side, then... Well, the chances are that Killick would have had no issues bringing the second train to a halt at the portal. It's a really simple omission. Um, the setup worked without it, but it might have saved 23 lives if it had just been duplicated on both ends. The second is a little bit more shocking, and it's around Killick's working hours on the day. Now, on the railways, we love a long shift, but recently, and, well, in recent years and accidents such as Clapham, we actually now have a really hard limit on what safety-critical workers are allowed to work. So 12 hours is the maximum that you can work, and other jobs have different lower hours based on what they are. But back in the time of this accident, in 1861, the signals had a regulation 18-hour turn of duty on Sundays, which is horrifying. However, not as horrifying as the fact that the men had just booked on for a 24-hour turn. This had arranged, been arranged to get them a full day off on some Sundays, instead of working a portion of every Sunday. But it surprised the investigators even back then. The phase I picked out was common humanity, as well as common prudence, would give these men a holiday at least on every alternative Sunday, without obliging them to remain on duty for 24 hours in this manner in order to obtain it. And I'm pretty sure I agree. Although I'm not sure that the phrase work-life balance was bandied around as much in the 1860s, it's still fairly poor. It's a big expectation to put on people. And the fact that they'd come to an arrangement with the company that had them remaining on duty for 24 hours, surely safety should have kiboshed that at day one. The accident, though, couldn't be attributed to the practice, and it happened at the wrong time in their shifts. It kind of just booked on. But still... It showed another issue with the practices in this area of the world. It it just shouldn't have been that way. The Clayton Tunnel accident was one of the driving forces to moving the railway away from time interval to block working. It showed quite clearly the flaws and the risks inherent within the current way of working. Eventually, as I explained earlier, all signalling would move to a completely signalled method of work, absolute block, and it's clear that each development since then has brought incremental improvements. There is a reason that I've really wanted to cover Clayton, despite the fact it has been incredibly challenging to write from, with only a very hard to read, and I'm talking about the quality of the document hard to read. If you do want to look, get yourself on the Railway Archives website and have a look at the accident report. It's not easy to work from. So I hope it's translated. In 1866, five years after the Clayton accident, Charles Dickens introduced us all to the story of The Signalman, a classic British ghost story. Within the tale, and I won't spoil the details for you, there is a small account of a train crash, one with remarkable similarity to the one that took place at Clayton Tunnel five years earlier. The accident was probably still fresh in people's mind at the time when the story was released. I mean, nowadays we talk about um, Grey Rig or Great Heck or Potter's Bar, and it still is fresh in people's mind, and that's 20 years gone. This accident was probably very fresh, even at a time when more accidents were taking place. So when the Christmas edition of All Year, All the Year Round came out, 
and there was a story in there with a reminder of it, it probably rung quite poignantly with people. But it really is a good ghost story. In fact, if you want to hear more about The Signalman, keep listening at the end of this episode for the announcement of a wee Christmas treat. But the last comment that I want to make about Clayton Tunnel is in relation to an article I stumbled upon while researching it. It might be cobblers, but it might be true. Apparently, the tunnel is now home to paranormal activity, if you believe in its existence. According to the report, since the accident, screams of agony and crunching metal have been heard in the tunnel with numerous reports of ghostly activity in the portals. There is even a ghost nicknamed Charlie, who has been reportedly sighted near the sealed-off entrance by the ventilation shaft. And I suppose there's a few places like that. Um, even the London Underground, there's, there's a lot of places that have a grisly history, and these sorts of stories tend to find their way out. And it might just be the atmosphere or the feeling of dread as you linger in a space with such a dark history. I'm not sure if I believe it. I'm not really sure what my thoughts are on that one, but I do know one thing for sure. I don't know if, I don't know if it's somewhere I would want to linger for too long on a dark night, alone with my thoughts and the knowledge of what once took place here. Thank you for joining me in the third episode of season two. We are getting through these, um, especially now I'm getting them out every two weeks again. Go, go on me for sticking to my schedule. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. Now, it's very, very nearly Christmas. And I thought it might be nice to do you a little treat. Um, we are, what, four, five days away by the time this episode goes out to air. So I probably don't have time to research an entirely new episode, but I did talk about The Signalman. It is a classic ghost story. It's set in and around a signal box and it's, it's fairly railway themed. So I will be releasing uh, a Christmas telling of The Signalman um, very shortly. I'm not entirely sure what day. It'll probably be Christmas Eve. It will go out to publish. But the, the extra Christmas treat there is for my um, live stream tier patrons, I now am live streaming every episode record. Again, a wave to you guys that are currently there. Um, however, as a Christmas present, I will be live streaming to everybody and anybody the uh, the recording session for The Signalman, which will be one of the evenings this week. If you want to, if you're interested in, in listening into that, if you're interested in watching the live stream, then get yourself uh, subscribed to at Signals to Danger on Twitter. That's where I'll announce the details and that's where I will share the link to the live stream. I'm not 100% sure right now what day it's going to be, but it will be probably Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday evenings this week. So yeah. Anyway, that's a rambling exit compared to most episodes. So until next time, travel safe.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.